I'm Rob Kirkup, and this is How Haunted, the paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the scariest places on the planet. In episode 72, we head to the theatre, where we may very well encounter a plethora of ghosts, including that of a carry-on icon who died on the stage, a man killed by a cannonball, and two women who sadly took their own lives. Join me as we return to my native northeast, and let's ask... Just how haunted are the theatres of Tyne and Weir? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. Have you ever felt a shiver crawl down your spine as you've stepped into an old theatre? or sensed an unseen presence watching you from the darkened balconies. If so, you're not alone. Theatres, with their rich histories and passionate performances, are also breeding grounds for some of the most bone-chilling hauntings, and in this episode, we'll peek behind the curtain at some of the most haunted theatres in Tyne and Weir. The Sunderland Empire Theatre The Empire Palace, as it was originally called, was opened on the 1st of July 1907 by Vesta Tilly, a popular music hall entertainer of the day, and one of the country's top male impersonators. She was also the first artist to perform at the theatre. The theatre's 90-foot-high tower features a revolving sphere, topped by a statue of Terpsichore, the muse of music and dance. The theatre closed in 1959 due to the growing popularity of television and cinema, Sunderland Council bought the theatre and reopened it the following year. Shortly after reopening, the Beatles played at the Empire on the 9th of February 1963 during their first UK tour. On the 26th of April 1976, the famous carry-on actor Sid James suffered a massive heart attack early into the opening show of the mating season. An ambulance was called, but Sid James didn't survive the journey to the hospital. He died shortly after leaving the building. The ghost of Sid James is set to haunt dressing room number one, that he occupied on the night of his death. A number of famous stars are believed to have experienced unusual happenings in this room ever since. In 1989, English comedian, presenter and actor Les Dawson was appearing at the Sunderland Empire and he was so disturbed by something that he'd witnessed in that dressing room that he asked to move rooms. He refused to talk about what happened and the press reportedly said that he'd seen the ghost of Sid James. Dawson refused to comment on what had actually happened that night, and he took his secret to the grave. Whereas Sid James is unquestionably the Empire's most famous ghost, the theatre is also reputedly haunted by the spirits of two females. Vesta Tilly, who opened the theatre over a century ago, and Molly Moselle. On the 14th of January 1949, Moselle, assistant stage manager to a touring company performing the dancing years at the Empire, left the building to go and post a birthday card, and was never seen again. She was 33 years old at the time of her disappearance. A number of years ago, a badly decomposed skeleton was fished out of the River Weir, and it was obvious that it had been in there for many years. It was the body of a female, roughly the same height as Molly, but the skeleton's identity could not be established. Today, Molly's ghost is known as the White Lady. Staff and visitors to the theatre regularly report feelings of being watched, and odd noises have been heard by staff in the auditorium when it's been empty. Footsteps have been heard walking across the empty stage. 
In 2010, I spoke to Mr. Melvin James, who had worked at the Empire since 1972, and at the time of our chat, he was the technical manager of the theatre. On that fateful night in 1976, which saw Sid James suffer a fatal heart attack, Melvin was the first person to come to his aid. He was kind enough to take the time to tell me his memories of the passing of one of Britain's best-loved comic actors. I was stage manager of the theatre, and it was the first day of the show. The cast, including Sid James, had been chatting and joking at the side of the stage before the performance began. I was in my office when, about ten minutes into the show, the wardrobe mistress Helen Lamb came running to my door saying something had happened. The stage was a box set in those days, meaning that the stage itself was separated from the wings. Sid was due on stage but had not appeared. He was to walk up a few steps and then down some more steps onto the set which was made up to look like a lounge. My office was close to the stage so I was there in seconds and I could see him slumped over on the opposite side of the stage. I quickly climbed a Jacob's ladder and then onto a small perch and then closed the curtains. The actress on stage, Olga, was shaken and said that she wasn't sure if he was playing or if he was genuinely ill. I was the first person to him and straight away I knew from my basic first aid knowledge from my time in the forces that there was nothing I could do for him. I went out onto the stage in front of a bemused audience and asked if there was a doctor in the house. The response was a huge laugh from a crowd who thought that this was part of the show. I persevered and fortunately there was a doctor in attendance and he came to the side of the stage. Everything happened so quickly and by the time the doctor came to Sid's aid, the ambulance crew didn't want to move him but the doctor knew how serious it was and had him taken to the ambulance straight away. Within the next hour or so we heard the tragic news that he had died. There was no understudy for him so the whole tour was cancelled. I mean, how do you replace someone like Sid James? The set lived on the stage for the remainder of the week until it was dismantled. I've never seen or experienced anything that would lead me to believe that Sid James haunts the Empire, but I have read and heard reports that many believe that he does. The scariest thing I can recall was from 1972, the year I started working here. Back in those days the gallery, or the gods as some people call it, was closed off acoustically, with a large curve going up to the ceiling which would take the acoustics around the building and the gallery was used to store things. I went up there one night with no lights on, just a torch, and for no reason, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up rigid like a really stiff broom. I always felt uneasy in the gallery, and would take somebody with me if I needed to go up there. Art Centre Washington Art Centre Washington is on the site of a medieval farm, with many of the historic farm buildings incorporated at the modern centre offering a gallery, artist studio, rehearsal rooms, a fully licensed bar, recording studio, function rooms and a theatre. It was in the room now used as a theatre that the scene of a suicide took place many years ago. A woman hung herself from a beam and it is this same woman who is believed to haunt the theatre to this day. A dark shadow often being seen at the back of the auditorium. Staff have seen figures walking up the main staircase and also through a wall which stands where a staircase used to be. Bar staff and customers have experienced strange goings on, with bottles being thrown from shelves, the radio changing frequency on its own, and the smell of roses being inexplicably reported on numerous occasions. In the 1990s, residents in the area made a series of formal complaints about loud noises coming from the centre late into the night. However, the centre was locked up and empty on each of these occasions. 
In July 1994, the Art Centre held a display of coin-operated puppets. Each puppet would perform a novel action when money was inserted, and one of the puppets was fitted with a Polaroid camera and would take a photo and then dispense the photo a few moments later. The morning after the puppets were initially set up, staff turning up for work were astounded to discover that the camera had been activated during the night and a photo dispensed. No money had been put into the puppet and the building had been empty. The mystery deepened and blood ran cold when staff looked at the Polaroid that had been produced to see a misty image which clearly defined a woman with long blonde hair staring directly into the camera. In 2009 I spent an afternoon in the company of Carol Chipchase, Pauline Hoy and Paul Stothard who had all worked at Art Centre Washington for a number of years. Pauline began by telling me of the things that she and the other staff have experienced. We have a lot of unusual things that happen. Electrical things often turn themselves on and off including lights and radios. There was a period where the photocopier would turn itself off whenever anyone went to use it. One day I was in the photocopier room alone and the room was locked. I went to press the start button and it turned itself off. When I went to turn it back on I found that it had been turned off at the wall socket behind the photocopier. Another common occurrence is glass and bottles flying off the shelves in the bar. There was a medium here late one night. We took him into the theatre and he walked up and down the seats and then stopped. He started breathing deeply as if in a trance. He then said, Who's this young person? And at that precise moment a large door swung open and then slammed shut. A class came from a school in Biddick to do a workshop and all of the pupils wanted to know about the ghosts. So we were in the theatre and the kids were all so engrossed in the stories of things that had happened. When we left the theatre, the teacher had forgotten something so went back into the theatre alone. She came running out, white as a sheet, terrified. She took the pupils straight back to school and refused to talk to us about what had happened to her in the theatre. We had to have a lot of rewiring done and we had an electrician in the theatre alone standing on some scaffolding. He had a feeling that somebody was at the bottom of it and when he looked down there was nobody there. But a few moments later the scaffold started shaking. He ran out and he refused to come back to the theatre. There was a grand piano in a large storeroom covered up. On a number of occasions people heard it being played. So somebody would go to find out who was playing it and could hear it being played right up until the door of the storeroom was opened, at which point the playing stopped. The storeroom was always empty and the piano was always still covered up. Paul continued and he told me some more of the supernatural occurrences that take place at Art Centre Washington. We have a craft fair the first Saturday of every month. Stallholders usually arrive around 9 in the morning to set up their stalls. One morning a lady stallholder collapsed and died. A few weeks later I was locking up at night, I checked all of the rooms were empty and I went out to my taxi. The taxi driver said that just before I'd came out a woman had just walked into the centre. I asked what she looked like and he described her as short with a black top and a black skirt on. I went back in and checked all of the rooms and there was nobody in the building. When I got back into the taxi, I asked the driver to describe the woman in as much detail as he could. His description matched the woman who died at the craft fair perfectly. One night a woman with a camcorder picked up on a glowing object, which can only be described as looking like a jellyfish moving through the theatre, seeming to pulse as it moved. There was a drug awareness production staged here in the theatre. The girl on the stage stopped mid-performance as she saw a man appear on the stage alongside her. He was wearing an old-fashioned army uniform. 
She was terrified and she ran off the stage. She looked back and she saw him walk through a wall. A number of people have claimed to see this man. It is believed he dates back to the time that the centre was used as a farm and that he was having an affair with the farmer's wife. Other ghosts seen regularly include a man in a long grey coat and a woman who has been seen a number of times. But more commonly, a strong smell of roses is experienced. After a New Year's party one year, we came upstairs and we decided to do a Ouija board. We sat down around a table and we all touched the glass and the alarm started going off. The alarm can't be reset in the centre, an engineer has to be called out to do it. However, as soon as we took our fingers off the glass, the alarm stopped. On another occasion, the centre's alarm went off in the middle of the night for no apparent reason. The engineer who came out to reset it brought a big German Shepherd dog with him and as he entered the art centre, the dog refused to come into the building. All of its first stood up on end, and it started to growl and bark very aggressively into the darkened doorway. The Tyne Theatre and Opera House The Tyne Theatre and Opera House is one of the region's most popular live entertainment venues, and it's the oldest work in Victoria theatre in the world. It was opened on the 18th of September 1867 as the Tyne Theatre and Opera House. The theatre was designed by William B. Parnell, and has changed hands and been renamed many times over the years. For a number of years it was operated by SMG, who owned Newcastle's Utilitar Arena. They were backed by the Journal newspaper and the theatre was renamed the Journal Tyne Theatre. This was until 2012. Between 2012 and 2014 it was the Mill Volvo Tyne Theatre. And now with it being independently owned, its original name has been adopted again. It remains substantially today much like how it was when it first opened, including the frontage which remains almost identical to how it would have appeared in 1867. On the 7th of April 1887, a terrible accident took place at the Tyne Theatre and Opera House. The theatre had a revolutionary sound effect system, and during a performance of an opera, Nordisa, a cannonball weighing 36 pounds was rolled along a surface to generate a thunder sound on stage. The ball then dropped into a box and the sound effects ceased. However on that fateful night the ball fell out of the box, fallen a distance of 12 feet and landed on the head of a member of staff, Bob Cortonage, shattering his skull and killing him instantly. The ghost of Bob is believed to have haunted the Tyne Theatre ever since that tragic night over 130 years ago, with literally hundreds of people claiming to have seen him. The smell of tobacco has also been reported by staff in the theatre, especially after a performance has finished and the theatre goes have dispersed into the night. The Little Theatre The Little Theatre was the only theatre in Britain built during World War II. It was built on a derelict site, which would have housed numbers 1 and 2 Saltwell View, purchased in 1939. This was thanks to the generosity of sisters Madeline Hope, Ruth and Sylvia Dodds of Lowfell, renowned public figures in the early 20th century. Madeline Hope was at Cambridge before women could be awarded degrees, and would also write a book, The Pilgrimage of Grace, which would be considered one of the most defining books on church history. Ruth was a prominent Labour politician in Gateshead during the 1930s, and would become an honorary freeman of Gateshead in 1965. Building a theatre during hostilities led to a number of interruptions. At one point it was requisitioned as a barrage balloon station, and on another occasion a bomb fell on nearby Saltwell Park and it blew out the windows and the doors of the theatre. With the theatre finally ready to put on shows for the people of Gateshead, the opening performance was A Midsummer Night's Dream on October the 13th, 1943. 
Number three, Saltwell View came up for sale and was purchased and incorporated into the new building immediately. The Little Theatre and the Progressive Players, a repertory company formed in 1920 and who would perform most often at the Little Theatre once it opened, went from strength to strength. But during the 1960s and 70s, things looked bleak for the theatre. There was the threat of demolition hanging over the building to make way for a new road. However, thankfully, this never came to be. In 1989, number four Saltwell View was purchased to ease overcrowding and allowed further expansion of the theatre. In recent years, the building, which is now Gateshead's only theatre, has undergone a major facelift, which was completed in late 2013, just in time for the building's 70th birthday. Another thing that's happened in recent years to the Little Theatre is its grown reputation as one of the Northeast's haunted hotspots, with paranormal groups from far and wide conducting paranormal investigations at the theatre. Spectral figures have been seen walking along corridors of the building, as well as the changing rooms. When the stage has been completely empty, people have clearly heard footsteps walking across it. People have heard whispering into their ear when they've been alone, and when nobody else is around. Why this unassuming theatre, which is still relatively young, should have these phantom residents is unclear. But as these paranormal investigations continue, perhaps we will get closer to discovering what secrets this building holds. The Theatre Royal The original Theatre Royal opened on the 21st of January 1788 on Moseley Street, having been granted its royal licence by King George III. However, when the 1830s came around, the theatre was on the route of the proposed Grey Street, and obstructed Richard Granger and John Dobson's bold redevelopment plans for the centre of Newcastle. Grey Street was intended to be called New Dean Street, because it continued on the earlier Dean Street, much of which was laid out in the mid-1700s. It was the Northumberland-born Prime Minister Earl Grey, whose commanding 130-foot Grey's Monument that was built at the northern end of the street in 1838 that gave the street its name, that it has now been known by since it was constructed. Before Grey Street existed, it was the route of a gurgling stream, the Lort Burn, running downhill through early 19th century Newcastle into the River Tyne. Grey Street today is lauded as Newcastle's finest thoroughfare, and this is backed up by a number of awards and plaudits over the years. In 1862, future Prime Minister William Gladstone described it as being our best modern street. In 2010, Listeners of Radio 4 voted it the best street in the UK. In 1948, the poet John Betjeman declared, As for the curve of Grey Street, I shall never forget seeing it to perfection. Trafficless on a misty Sunday morning. Not even old Regent Street London can compare with that descending, subtle curve. The original Theatre Royal's final performance was on the 25th of June 1836. The current Theatre Royal on Grey Street was designed by local architects John and Benjamin Green. It opened its doors on the 20th of February 1837, with a performance of William Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice. The bells of St Nicholas's Church rang out in celebration of the opening night. In 1899 the theatre was ravaged by a huge fire after a performance of Macbeth. The interior of the building was completely destroyed. Theatre architect Frank Matcham redesigned the interior and it was reopened on the 31st of December 1901. The building is exactly the same externally as it was when it was first built. Between 1986 and 1988, the theatre underwent a major refurbishment, costing over £6.5 million. It reopened on the 11th of January 1988, with a performance of A Man for All Seasons starring Charlton Heston.
The Theatre Royal dominates Newcastle's Granger town to this day, and it's a Grade 1 listed building. The Theatre Royal presents over 380 performances to over 300,000 people each year, and it's the regional home of the Royal Shakespeare Company. In the 19th century the theatre offered cheap seats in the gallery to the lower classes. One lady who attended the theatre regularly developed an infatuation with a handsome actor who was the leading man in a Victorian play at the theatre. She made an effort to see the play as often as she could afford. One night she decided to wait for him by the stage door and they began an affair. News of this scandal quickly spread and the pair decided to elope after his final performance and get married. The lady couldn't be happier and she prepared to leave her life in Newcastle behind to be with the man she loved. The pair met after the penultimate performance of the play, the lady bursting with excitement and keen to discuss their future together. The man dropped a bombshell that was to break the lady's heart. He was already married, and he explained that his relationship with her was just a fling while he was in Newcastle. Heartbroken, she went to his final performance of the play, Tears were streaming down her face as the play neared its climax. She couldn't take any more, and she threw herself from the gallery down into the packed stalls below and to her certain death. It is believed that it is this betrayed woman who still haunts the auditorium. She is known as the Grey Lady. She is often seen as a faint figure holding a lit candle. The sound of weeping and deep sighing has been heard throughout the theatre. <coughs> You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod where you will see photos galore relating to the haunted theatres of Tyne and Weir. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me at rob at how-haunted.com If you'd like to support the show, you could sign up to one of three Patreon tiers. They start at as little as £1. You can get early ad-free access to episodes and a monthly bonus episode where I conduct a paranormal investigation, talking you through the history, the ghost stories, and what happened on the night itself. This is interspersed with audio from the ghost hunt. What's more... There's currently a free 7 day trial to the £3 tier, so you could get access right now to January's special episode where I spent 48 hours in the company of a haunted doll. Then there's all of the other special episodes, which include the big Halloween special at the Golden Fleece in York, Dalhousie Castle Hotel, the York Dungeon, Bedlam Theatre, Kielder Castle, the 4 hour version of the Bowes Railway Investigation, and Haggerston Castle Holiday Park. You can also get yourself some exclusive How Haunted merch, including a mug and a t-shirt. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod. If you'd like to support the show but you aren't a fan of Patreon, why not donate a couple of pounds to help with the admin side of the podcast? You can do this by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash howhauntedpod. All the information and links or in the podcast episode description. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please consider leaving a review on your podcast provider of choice. It'll only take you a few minutes, and it really does help other people to find how haunted. Next time out, 
I'll be answering questions from listeners just like you. With questions including, what was the first encounter or story that piqued your interest? Have you ever been so scared of a place that you would not go back? And what's the most embarrassing thing to happen to you during your paranormal adventuring? If you want to hear the answer to all of these questions and more, then join me next episode for the second questions and answers special. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe, and join me next time, where we will once again ask the question, How haunted? Ha ha ha!